If you have your Bible, go ahead and find your way again to um, the book of Ephesians. We are continuing our series through Ephesians in talking through peace through grace and just continuing to look that our identities provide the security that we need only when they're rooted in Christ. And, and we see that throughout the book of Ephesians. This whole, this first half of Ephesians, Paul's basically describing who we are in Christ. He's, he's giving us what we are in Christ, defining who we are, giving us our identities in Christ. So then, at the, towards the end of the book, the last half of the book, he then gets into the practical application of what that then looks like. Oh, sorry. Sorry, she was giving me signals from the back there. Apparently, I mistyped my own sermon. It's all right. We'll go with it. So, uh, but, but we see this continually rooted in ourselves. And we, we understand who we are because of the words that we've been given here. Not just Ephesians. This is what we're focusing on now. We're, we're expounding these words here in Ephesians. But, but really throughout God's scripture, we see this over and over again where we find who we are in Christ because of what he's done. And then we, we realize then that our lives reflect that identity, that, or reflect that. So today, um, we're going to read the whole passage again, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. I'm just going to get the flow of that, and then we'll, we'll pull out the second half of this passage today as we get into it. So, um, Ephesians, follow along with me, Will. Ephesians 3, verse 1, it says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight to the mystery of Christ, which was made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 7, he continues, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light everyone, for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be now might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. If you all will pray with me, we'll ask the Spirit to guide us through this passage today. Father, we we come and again acknowledge that we so desperately need your help, God. We, we acknowledge that, that we are incapable of perceiving your truth without your Spirit's help. And God, we just pray that today your Spirit would, would move inside our hearts, would speak to us, would reveal truth, that it would be your truth, unchanging truth that you've given us that we would see today, that we'd realize today, and it would be that truth then 
that would change the trajectory of our lives. God, we just pray that you would enlighten our hearts, would give us ears to hear today as we look at what you've given us through Paul. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So today we want to look at the fact that once a person has placed their faith in Jesus, they then throughout life have this cumulative, cumulative confidence in their lives. And, and it's once we place our faith in Christ, then our confidence continues to increase. It's a, a cumulative process as we move forward in our lives because we have confidence in who our identity is placed in, in Christ. And that's not to say that, that we then flippantly take on the world or we just go throughout our lives, but that through Jesus we see the outcome of our lives differently. It's through a different lens that we perceive our lives. And, and, and that's how we know that, that our security is there is because it's in Jesus. Jesus himself, John 6, 39 says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. And what he's saying there is he's telling them that I will not lose anything that the Father has given me. A couple weeks ago, we talked about that in Christ, those that were far off have brought near. And so what we see there is that our identity is secure in Jesus. That it's through him that we have security. It's through him that we have confidence then to live our lives. Then that confidence will increase as our lives progress, as we look at the gospel more, as we constantly ask the Spirit to reveal who he is more. And so today we see that individually and corporately, we cannot have confidence in our identity apart from Jesus. Apart from the work of Christ, we don't have confidence. We can't gain that. But we see rather that in Jesus, we not only have confidence, but that that confidence grows. It increases over time. And the, the reason that's so important is because it, it would be utterly foolish to continue through life without a sense of our identity. If you don't know who you are, it's, it's not worth living. We, we basically turn into running around like chickens with your head cut off. You have this perception of life, but yet death is a mere heartbeat away. And, and while I was looking at this and, and thinking about it, I often do. Sorry if you get tired of me using movie illustrations. That's just what comes to my mind because I remember stuff. It made me think of the movie The Legend of Bagger Vance. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's about a golfer. Will Smith was in it. He was this amazing caddy guy. But what happens is the story of a, a guy that's come home. They want to have. It's in the middle of the Depression. They have this huge golf tournament they're going to have. But the powers that be in the city want a local person to compete. And so he's their local hero, if you will. And so they get him. The problem was, is he has just come back from the war. He, he really doesn't have his life in together. He's carrying all this other baggage with him. And he doesn't know how to play anymore. He says he's lost his swing. And, and throughout the first round of the tournament, it's, it's terrible. It's like me playing golf when you watch the Masters today. It's the difference in that. But what happens is one of these guys comes up to Bagger Vance, which is his caddy, and says... It looks like you have no idea what you're talking about. And he says, well, he still thinks he's Randolph Juna. He's talking about his player. He still thinks he, and he says, the, the man responds, he is Randolph Juna. And he says, Bagger Vance responds, well, he is and he isn't. And see, and that's what we have here is that when we see our confidence in Christ, we, we still are ourselves, but we really aren't. 
have this change in us that happens that, that we have to realize this change so that we can then have the confidence to move forward in our lives. And it wasn't until in the movie that he realized this confidence that he was able then to get in play and like Hollywood, everything turns out great. But that's the same thing that happens with us. The confidence comes with who our identity rests because we are ourselves, but yet we're not. And the first way that we see this, this confidence coming is, is through echoing his voice. And as we begin to look at this passage a little more, we're again given a glimpse into Paul's own identity. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me again as we pull out these last half of that passage that we read. Verse 7, it says, Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, grace was given. Of this gospel, remember last week we saw that the gospel, what was this mystery they revealed? What is the gospel? We, we see that in, in verse 6. So the gospel is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They're members of one body, and they're the same body, and they're partakers in the promise in Christ through the gospel. So the gospel message is that those that were far off, those that were separated from God, have been brought in in Christ. And not only just brought in, but they're fellow heirs now. They're in the same body. They're partakers in promise. And so Paul says, it's of that gospel that I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So Paul reveals to us that it was strictly for that purpose that he was made a minister. It was... Strictly to proclaim the gospel. God chose him. You see that? That God had a specific purpose for Paul to bring that gospel to the Gentiles, to us. And we also share in that task. Look at, look at whose idea it was. According, the second part of verse 7. According to the gift of God's grace, which he has given me by the working of his power. It was God, it was God that called Paul. Paul didn't, Paul didn't go and decide, I'm going to preach this gospel. No, God told him he was going to. God told him he was going to. It's actually the exact opposite. Paul was completely on the other team. The first mention we have really of him when we're starting to, to see his conversion, when, when he was still Saul, before the name change and his identity changed, the, the thing that he's described is he was still breathing murderous threats. Paul's one objective was to kill the church, literally. Kill the church. But then what happened? He's on the road to Damascus and he encounters God. And God tells him and he encounters, he says, why do you persecute me? And he's blinded by the radiance of Jesus on that road. And he's led then on to Damascus. And we get, we get part of the story that Paul doesn't get at this time. If you look, Acts 9, 15, it says, but the Lord said to him, said to him, he's talking to the guy. He told Paul to meet someone. Go to this and see this man. And so now God tells the man what to do. He says, but the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and to the children of Israel. And so when, when God comes to this guy to, to tell him that Paul's coming, he kind of freaks out. He's like, wait a second. This guy's the one that wants to kill us. You want me to go meet him? You're crazy. And so God reassures him. He said, no, he's my chosen instrument. He's my instrument. And so we see that it wasn't Paul's idea, it was rather God's. And so we see, just like Saul then, who later becomes Paul and his name changed, that when God comes into your life, you're called for a purpose and your life changes as a result. Now, we're not equal in authority with Paul being an apostle, but we have the same responsibility. We're to preach the gospel 
to those who are far off. To those who are far We see that in Matthew 28. Jesus' final words recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 28, 19, it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it says, To teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so we see that not only Paul wasn't the only one called, the apostles weren't, but he sends out everyone. The gospel is a message of change. And when that change happens in our lives, we too are called to go out. It's often not our own idea. It's God coming into us. But see, here's where the objective happens. This is where people object to this message because we've, we've messed up the idea of ministry. We've, we, in Western culture, we've messed up the idea of, of ministry. And, and what we do is we think, well, someone else is going to do it. When um, right after high school, I, I was living in this house with some other guys. And one of the guys was like the clean freak. Like he had to have everything perfect and neat. So what did the rest of us do? Nothing. It's like, why clean if he's going to, right? It's like, I'm sitting there chilling and he's cleaning everything. I mean, we do our laundry. And the odd part of the story is we had to teach him how to do laundry, yet he was the clean freak. Anyway, sorry, side note. But we didn't do anything. We knew that the house was going to be cleaned because he couldn't keep it that way. So did we ever clean? No. We watched him clean. But that's what we do in ministry. We assume we see people out and we we assume, well, someone else is going to do that. Well, someone else is going to do that. Why do I have to do it if someone else is going to go? And that reveals the problem we have in church today is that with people that have grown up in a culture that doesn't stress evangelism as much as it stresses service. And we think now that, that we've misunderstood these jobs within the church to think about just what are we doing for other people? We see someone working over here at this, so we're going to try to do something else. But the whole point is to proclaim the gospel. The, the idea that ministry only happens by the pastors within the church or the parachurch organizations within society is not the correct thing. So you see, Paul's calling wasn't to serve people by providing material needs. It was to proclaim the gospel. And yes, they would do all that. And yes, you see through the history of the church, the church has been the best at providing both for the needs, but also proclaiming the gospel. It's both. It's not one or the other. And, and, the, and the problem that happened with that is, is that those in the church have become afraid to call people to do the job of ministry. So we, we have this idea, and this is, this is primarily uh, the problem of, of pastors that are afraid to ask people to do stuff when they work full time or to do something like that. But that's the idea that ministry is something outside of your life when in fact it is your life. We shouldn't worry about how much we work or what we do outside of the home because what we do outside of the home or what we do during work should be the ministry. We should be proclaiming the gospel. And so we have to ask ourselves, is everyone that we work with a, a, a Christian? Is everyone that we work with heard the gospel and responded? And if not, we have to ask ourselves, well, then when was the last time we had a gospel conversation with someone? When was the last time that we, we stepped out with the risk of being cast out or being that weird person and actually proclaimed the gospel? Because that's what we're called to do. You work with people. I used to tell the youth when I was a youth pastor um, that they have a captive audience at school. They have to be there. You can proclaim the gospel and they can't get away. They get away, they're in trouble. And it's the same thing with us at work in our lives. is people around us. 
They're there. So then the, the next objective that we come to that we need to overcome is that we say, well, we're not qualified. We're not qualified. Well, look at verse 8. What does Paul say? It says, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And what we have here is, it looks like Paul's bragging, saying, I'm the least of all this. But he's not. He's rather remembering his life before his conversion. In reality, there really wasn't anyone that was in a starker contrast to the gospel. I mean, when you're introduced to us as breathing murderous threats, there's not many people that can say, I was further off than that. So he was in reality, but that's not, he's not saying that to set himself. He's saying that to remember who he was before this. Yet grace was extended. Why was this grace extended? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And in that, we see our message as well. What are, what are we to do? We remember where we were before we in, were introduced to Christ. We remember our lives because we were all so far off. It doesn't take a violent testimony. It doesn't take a violent testimony to speak the gospel. It takes your testimony. It takes remembering where you were before Christ. And then what do you do? You preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, which are what you've been given. What we've been given in Christ are those unsearchable riches, those incalculable riches. With our lives, the change that we have are pictures of that. And so we merely echo the voice that Jesus has already given us, that those who were cast out have been brought near. And when we see that, and we realize that, and we start hearing ourselves say that, our confidence then grows because we realize the message we're speaking is not ours. The gospel doesn't need our eloquence. It simply needs our proclamation. People aren't changed by the power of our delivery, but by the power of our message and the person whose message that is. So that brings us now to the next part is we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to grow in confidence by echoing the voice of God in the gospel proclamation. We see also that our confidence grows as we see the enlightenment of everyone. We enlighten everyone. Verse 10 says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And here's where we realize that it's only through our diversity that's unified that the wisdom of God is revealed. You see, individually we bear this banner of our king. And when we each do this, we reflect that universal magnitude of the gospel because everyone displays that banner differently because we're so diverse. And then what the world sees as crazy is now we're so diverse, yet we're unified and our confidence not only comes to the church now and those of us around the church, but also comes with the centuries past. We can look back on the church of history and with confidence know the message that we're proclaiming is the correct one because we can look back on the centuries past and see that they were standing on the same scripture and the same cornerstone as that we now stand. This isn't this new revelation. It was when Paul was saying it. When, when Paul's describing here being the church, the manifold wisdom, this is something the world had never seen. The Jews and Gentiles weren't together, and now all of a sudden they are in this new body. They're members of the same body. So the church now is this new idea. It's never been seen. God's wisdom is nef- was never revealed in this way until Paul is saying this. Until the church comes in Christ, this is something new. This was hidden 
part of God's plan until this time, the church. But now what we see is in the working of the church, the body of Christ, both locally and universally, we see God's wisdom on display. Where is it on display? Everywhere. The authorities in the heavenly places. We can see the angels and everyone look down on the church in, dis, in, in awe because we see God's wisdom in bringing such a diverse and corrupt people under one banner into one body. The church is the vehicle by which the world, the universe, sees God's wisdom on display. So that's what we should do. The church is the vehicle, the only vehicle that God has prepared for this task. So we see that the, the church at this point is the culmination of God's wisdom. Because it's on display. Because only in the church do we see such diversity unified. And that doesn't mean people with all sorts of gifts. It's any separation. It's any diversity. The walls have been broken down. That's what Paul said when we talked about a few weeks ago. Christ destroyed these barriers. Racial barriers. Gender barriers. Service and the types of skills we have. There's no separation anymore. Those barriers between were unified. The church is the display of that wisdom. And as we proclaim the mystery of the gospel, then people see why we are that. That God in his wisdom saw fit not to condemn people, though he could have justly done so. Yet he provided a way to, to bring people that were so far off from him, to bring them together in him, in the gospel. And not only stop there, but to bring those people that are so diverse and so different into one body. We've been given this awesome task to be the visible sign of God's wisdom. And that's what the church is. That's what the church here, Watershed, is. We're to be that visual of God's wisdom to those people right around. And then as we're that visual of those people here, the world sees the visual of God's wisdom through the church universal. That all over the world are just playing one thing, that in Christ we're brought near. And that there's, no, there's no diversity anymore. We're all unified. When we go out and we maintain our unity, then the world sees the wisdom of God on display. But the problem is, is everyone says, well, look at the church. Everyone fights. And that's, that's a valid point. But the church fights and argues when it loses sight of the gospel, when it loses sight of the truth that we have. If scripture loses its authority, then the church has no authority because then we have nothing to stand on. That's when you see churches split. That's when you see churches fight is when they start to question the authority of the scripture that we've given. And all of a sudden we think, wait a second, we're smarter now than all the church past. And it's a scary place to be to realize and to think that we understand God's word than the last 2,000 years of church history. Because if we look back, if we look back on the church, we'll see a striking unity on the authority of scripture. And that's what drives the message forward. If we lose that, then we lose our message. Because if part of this all of a sudden is authoritative, then what part is? Then all of a sudden, the gospel, which is revealed to us in Scripture, really isn't that powerful. We have to go to our own understanding. And so the church is the only entity in the universe capable of bringing unity through such diversity because the church is the only thing that has the absolute truth revealed to us. 
God's plan won't fail because of us. If, if we all of a sudden forget this and you see the trajectory of the Western church that seems to be more and more marginalized, God's plan is not going to fall because of what we've done to the church. But there will be those around us that might remain blind to the gospel because we aren't being the agents of enlightenment, meaning that we're not proclaiming the gospel. It's not that we change people's lives, but we have a message that reveals how that life has changed. That's where we get Ephesians 1.18 when we talked about Paul's prayer. What is his prayer for the, for the Galatians? That the eyes of their hearts are enlightened so that they might know what the hope which, which he has called us to. The riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. And that's, should be our, that should be our prayer to the people around us. That we as the church should pray for those around us that their hearts would be enlightened. That they would look at us, they would see God's wisdom on display. That we're not the agents of their enlightenment, but we're the visual example of other hearts that have been enlightened because of the path of the gospel. And then finally, we, we see our confidence in this cumulative confidence that we have throughout life as we endure through life. Okay, the fact that we endure creates confidence. Verses 12 and 13. In whom we have boldness in Christ. Let me read verse 11. It'll give us a little context. This was according to the eternal purpose is realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in verse 12. In whom, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. You see, we read here that Jesus is the realization of God's plan. So God's plan from eternity past was to provide a way. That was Jesus. He's the realization of that plan. It was made known now. This mystery has been revealed. And that's why Paul then can now confidently say that in Christ we're able to boldly approach God. If Jesus is the realization of God's plan to redeem people to him, then it makes logical sense that it's through him that we can access the Father. Jesus is the reason we are back in fellowship with God. That's the entire story of the Bible. That's the story that we have of history recorded. In, in the beginning, if we go back all the way to Genesis, Adam and Eve were created in relationship with God. There was nothing separate. They walked with God in the garden. Then what happened? Sin entered. And the result, there was a breakdown in that relationship. In Genesis 3, we see the story. Start verse 1, 3, 1. You can turn there if you want, or I can just read it to you. In Genesis 3, 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say that you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, know, you will sure, not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate. Pause right there. See, that's where... That, that takes out the ability of the guys to blame it all on the woman because we were there when all this was happening, yet said nothing. Side note, sorry. Verse 7, what happens? Their eyes were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard, here's the critical part that we need to focus on. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and wives hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? You got to love how God can ask him a question that he already knows the answer to. So have you eaten of this tree that I commanded you not to? The man said, the woman gave it to me. Right? The woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit. So he blames her. Right? And then what happens? And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. See, already we're hiding from God because there's a separation in this relationship. We're afraid to approach God now because there's a separation. So what do we do? We start blaming everyone else. You see that in the world today. Everyone's problem is a result of someone else. And so just like Adam and Eve, we're afraid to approach God. We have this inherent disposition to flee from God. We don't want anything to do because we're afraid because this indwelling sin has put us at odds with him. We try to find our own way. We try to sew our own clothing. We cover ourselves. We cover our shame by our evidence, by our abilities. That's not what God wanted. If we keep going in verse 14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15 is a verse that you should always be able to recall. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 is the first time that we get a glimpse of God's plan. This is the first time we see the gospel being Spoken. God's telling Satan that, that there's going to be a man, an offspring of the woman that's going to bruise your head. He's going to kill you. You might, you might bruise his heel, but he's going to destroy you. This is the gospel. This is the first time that God revealed part of his plan. There will be a man that's going to conquer you. Because what you've done, he will come and he will go and do what they were unable to do. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you see this. You constantly see God, uh, men being raised up to be God's agent. You see the prophets proclaiming that one day there will be one come. All the way up until the beginning of the Gospels when we see John the Baptist come and declare that the salvation is now here. And he's talking about Jesus. And so all the way up until Jesus' sacrificial death, which we talk about this time of the year, Because we see that in Jesus, he is that man that so long ago in Genesis 3.15, God said, he will bruise your head. That's why Easter is so important. That's why next week when we look at Easter and we look at his death and his life, that's why it's so important. Because finally, what we failed to do in the garden through Adam and Eve is exactly what he was able to do. So that's why Paul can say what he says in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart. When I'm suffering, we can have confidence as we endure because we know that Jesus is better than anything in this world. Paul was in prison for the gospel. We talked about that last week. It wasn't until he talked about the Gentiles being welcomed in outside of the law and the ceremonies that he actually got arrested. So when he says, I'm suffering for you, which is your glory, he's being literal. 
It was the gospel that put him in prison. And so what did he say? Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Why? Because he understood that we have confidence in Christ. In Philippians 1.21, one of the most famous verses that Paul ever says, says, for me to live is Christ. He understands that his lifeblood is in Jesus Christ and nothing else matters in this world. But Paul's not the only one. In Hebrews 11, we see this record of all those that are faith. If you ever want to see a record of what the Old Testament, what these people by faith did, what the gospel allows us to do, you can read in Hebrews 11. But if we look at the last part, verse 33, we get this idea of it. In Hebrews 11, 33, it describes what people do because of, of their faith in God says verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Women received back their dead. All these are positive things. This is what people did through faith. They were able to do this through faith. These aren't just random things. These are things that happened. But that's positive. That's easy to have confidence in if it's everything's positive, right? So the writer of Hebrews tells the rest of the story. In verse 35, the second part, he says, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others mocked, suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They, were about, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the deserts and mountains and the dens and caves of the earth. All these, though condemned through their, uh, commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And so we see that if our confidence is in Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter what the world throws at us. We can either do these amazing things. We can conquer kingdoms and force justice. We can be a, a force for justice in the world because we have the power of Christ in us. But we also can suffer through mocking and affliction and being mistreated, being marginalized. And then if you continue in, in Hebrews 12, 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all those people of old, what do they say? He said, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who through the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was because of what Christ did that we can then endure, that we can run the race that's set before us. Why? How? By looking to Jesus who's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Everything that we need, all the confidence that we need is found in Jesus. And all those saints of old that went through all this, not even the ones recorded, those in the histories since Scripture, those that have been martyred for the faith realize that Jesus is better than what this world has. And they endured through the life because their confidence was in Him. So are you still hiding in this poorly designed fig leaves and loincloths trying to cover your shame? Or are you resting in the work of Christ that actually did cover it? See, and here's where the problem we have. If we go back to the story in the, that we talked about earlier with the movie with Bagger Vance, here's the problem. See, what happened is he, he gained his confidence by trusting what his caddy said, what, trusting what Bagger said. 
And when, in his confidence in what he said, he was then able to perform. And so what we do then is we, we see stories like that and we see this idea that it's through Christ that we do this. But what we do is we just hold confidence in his words and then do it ourselves. We don't merely find ourselves by hearing what Jesus said and having confidence in what he said. We find ourselves because we realize that Jesus is our identity. That Jesus is our strength. It's not our strength that gets us the confidence. It's the strength of him. It's because our identity is rooted in him. We don't just take what he says and think, oh, he was a good teacher. No. We take what he says and he was God. And he gave us everything. Jesus is the only way to truly find ourselves. And Jesus is the only way to truly have confidence. It's not through any other person than Jesus that we actually find the security and peace that we so desperately crave. And our confidence will continue to increase throughout our lives as we increasingly echo his words even to ourselves as we preach the gospel. And as we preach the gospel, we do that as a corporate body, individually and corporately together. So we see that people are then continually being enlightened. Their hearts will be enlightened to know the truth of Jesus. And then because of that truth, because of that security, we're able to endure. And as we continue to endure and we see what the world has for us, we know that it's through Jesus' strength, because he is better, that we're able to continue. That's where we have the security in our identity. That's where we have confidence in our identity because we know that it is completely and solely because of Jesus. And then finally, we'll see the final culmination of our confidence when he returns and establishes his kingdom. It will be complete. It's increasing until that point. Whether he comes back before we die or we die first and we're with him, that's when it's complete. Until then, it's just increasing. Why? As we continually ask the Spirit to empower us and to deepen our knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. That's when we have the confidence. That's when we have peace. When we realize it's through the grace that was given to us in Jesus that we have life. Let's pray.